Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, the Ukrainian army continued to advance. In the process, winning back territory in regions Russia had unilaterally declared were now part of its sovereign lands. Their faces are worn with tiredness, but these are the men slowly claiming back Ukrainian territory on the Eastern Front, and they can smell victory. The Russian troops smell something else more bitter and are abandoning their posts. One former Russian commander saying their units had to retreat to avoid being encircled. And watching all this from the Kremlin has been the Russian President Vladimir Putin, who turns 70 today. So what is the newly septuagenarian autocrat thinking right now? Where does the beginning of his 71st year find him? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Putin's draft, the sham referendums and the Ukrainian fight back. My name is Roger Boys. I'm the diplomatic editor of The Times. I write a weekly foreign policy column. And I've been really concerned with Russia since the 1970s. That's when I first started as a Moscow correspondent. Roger, I was looking at the television and I see images of something happening in Red Square last week. Can you take us through what it was that we were all looking at? To me, it was quite a familiar pantomime. I mean, when you listen to the words, then you realise that something quite portentous. But it was a kind of renter crowd, as one gets so often on Red Square, but essentially listening to what seems to be a victory speech. Russia not only opens the doors of her home to these people, to our brothers and sisters, she opens her heart. Welcome home. welcoming these people who have been pushed into buses to get there to the beginnings of new Russia, Nova Russia. These are these places that have just been annexed and they've been annexed from Ukraine. That's to say they've been snatched from Ukraine. I suppose it's kind of like a Hitler Anschluss speech. I think there was one after the Germans marched into Austria. 
they're of course joyful because they're ordered to be joyful, but also because, you know, it's like a football crowd. The team has won. In the West, it was interpreted as being an anti-Western speech, which is fair enough. That's what it was. But it was essentially as if he's shifted in this war and he's marking it. And he's marking it partly by saying this is a civilizational war. So first of all, it's a war not against Ukraine as such, but against the West or the Western back to Ukraine. But it's more than that. You know, he was very impressed by Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations way back. And he thought, yes, that's the way it is now. It's not so much America versus the US Cold War. It's basically the eight key world civilizations having to find space for each other and manage the frictions between them. And that was his approach to 9-11, to George Bush, for example. It was, this is a war of civilizations and we stand with you And it was also the moment, really, when he came to recognize Orthodox Christianity as part of his political complexion. And when you began to see him more and more going to church, you know, there's a special KGB church where he goes and does his thing, you know. There was a big change. And for me, this is the moment when he justifies expanding Russia formally, that he's also expanding the Slav world. Yeah, he's expanding the civilised Christian world. Let's step back a moment, go back a couple of weeks, to when he announced the partial mobilisation in Russia. I think it is necessary to support the proposal of the Ministry of Defence and the General Staff to conduct a partial military mobilisation in Russia. Now, Roger... That was a very big moment, wasn't it? It was, and he tried to make it not such a big moment because a general mobilization of Russia, well, there hasn't been one since 1941. And before that, it was 1914, so it goes back a bit. It was described as a partial mobilization, which meant calling up the reserves. That's 300,000 people, men, not necessarily in the prime of their lives. Only people currently in the military reserve will be drafted, prioritizing those who have served in the armed forces and have a particular military specialization and the corresponding experience. And the idea to do it in that way, rather than calling for a general conscription, which some of the generals have wanted, because that's what was needed to win the war in terms of manpower, but to do it like this, just to call up the reserves, was not to frighten the Bajabas out of the whole of the Russian metropolitan young, but it still frightened them because they can add one and one and make two. And it was quite clear that this 300,000 is actually just the beginning of a process which will eventually reach them. And instead of playing video games and things at home, they're going to end up being shot at. There's a cognitive dissonance that was developing, wasn't there, which was Russia talks about a special military operation, not a war. But the fact is then all of a sudden needs a lot more people to go into a special military operation, which suggests it's not really that special. It's actually a big military operation. There was a fundamental misunderstanding when the special military operation was launched. Was it going to be a war of occupation? Was it going to be a war of conquest? Was it going to be a war of partition? All these things were unresolved and unstated. 
So after a while, after seven and eight months of actual messy warfare, which we're pretending is not warfare, then it becomes clear that the terms have to be changed and the manpower situation has to reflect that. That's why that speech was such an important one, because it's about saying, well, we've achieved something. We've annexed these four territories, and now we've raised the soldiers to man these places, you know, to watch over bridges, to make sure that some kind of partisan resistance doesn't come and blow up roads, and to fight off the Ukrainians in general, and to keep the supply chains operating and so on. And that's why you need these 300,000 people. That's why it doesn't matter that they've all got beer paunches. <laughs> there are shambles because it doesn't really matter that it's a shambles. They've just got to be there and define a presence. Then when the Ukrainians attack, then the game changes yet again. But for now, that's what's happening. Right. So all these people start being sent off as a result of this mobilization announcement. And as you say, they don't really look like a whole lot of sort of battle-ready combat troops at all. What's been the reaction in Russia to this mobilization? Has it taken people from understanding this to be one thing to getting them to understand that for them, at least in their lives, it's now completely another? It is that. But I think that the main thing that probably worries Putin is that people will draw certain conclusions and think they're next. Yeah, so we've got the reserves who are kind of 40-year-old people who'd rather be fishing. And young, fit guys, you know, metropolitan youth of Moscow and St. Petersburg and just about everywhere, they can still leave. There are certain towns and cities in Europe where they can still go. Istanbul, they could go to Armenia, they could go to Georgia, maybe at a push. I mean, some people are saying no now. Some people are saying yes. What you don't want is those people who are currently booking their tickets at great expense to get out of Russia. You don't want these people staying at home and becoming part of an anti-war movement because an anti-war movement is exactly what can lock in to the Navalny opposition organization, which is a pretty smart organization, even though he's in prison. You don't want urban riots, urban disturbances. And so all the way along, you have to camouflage what you're doing. You have to camouflage the fact that they're next. So that might explain why, the, to a certain extent, the Russian authorities have been remarkably relaxed about people, about young men leaving. And as you characterize them, these will generally so far be young men from the middle classes. So I suppose the next question is, those poor 42, 45-year-old guys and some of the younger guys who don't come from the middle classes, has any of the kind of spirit of resistance begun to raise itself amongst them and amongst the people they come from? Well, interestingly, the other thing I didn't mention is there's a kind of racist premise to all this. Because so many white, middle-class, Russian, young and their mums and dads don't want them to go to war, what happens is you over-recruit from Central Asians. So Tajikistan, Dagestan, Chechens, you kind of trawl through Central Asia, where an army salary plus bonus is quite a lot of money. And basically, all of these republics live anyway from remittances from uh, workers that are sent to Moscow or the big cities. And they send back half of their salary to their mums and dads and various sisters to keep them alive. Well, 
military action is just an extension of that. But now they're coming back dead. And in some cases, they're getting a bonus for their dead sons. But on the whole, there's a lot of mourning going on. And the regime itself isn't as worried as perhaps it should be by this because it thinks it can basically cordon off all these areas. There's not much social contact between Tajiks and Dagestanis and Slav Russians in the north. So at the moment, it doesn't look to you then as if there is a widespread pushback from the kind of people who are sending their sons to be mobilised or fathers or brothers to be mobilised. It's almost certainly different in different parts of the country. You'll get small towns and villages where there is tension. You may remember the book by Svetlana Alexeva in which she talks about the absolute dismay and anger of mothers when their children were returned from Afghanistan and from Chechnya in their zinc coffins. And it's that kind of anger that exists and it can surprise you when it comes. So it's mothers quite often, village mothers. And it's very difficult to to generalize about a nation up in arms about going to arms. But it's there, it's simmering, and it's going to be a political problem for Putin. Let's move this on from uh, the mobilization to now, a week later, and the sham referendums take place in four Ukrainian provinces. And Putin gives another speech. Tell us about that speech and what he says. In terms of relevance for us, it's simply the statement that these provinces are now Russia. Today we are making this choice. Residents of Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, residents of Zaporizhia and Kyrgyzstan regions have made it. They have chosen to be with their people, to be with the motherland, to live its destiny, to win together with it. They're part of holy Russia, civilizational Russia, and they will be defended as Russia. And then suddenly, once you make that statement, you are already raising the prospect, and in fact he did so explicitly, of defending with all possible means, uh, which is polite language for nuclear weapons. I want to remind those who allow themselves such statements about Russia that our country also has a variety of weapons of destruction and in some areas even more modern than those in NATO countries. And once you've done that, once you've gone that far, then you know that this particular utterance, this particular speech is directed, first of all, at Ukraine because it's supposed to explain the stakes for Ukrainian troops, that's to say, they will be blasted in some way. And if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will without question use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. What does that mean? That well, Perhaps it means a tactical nuclear weapon against the Ukrainian city. But it's also against the West, because it's saying you have to decide. West has to decide. Is it a war with, with us, Russia, or not? Let the West be quite clear. This is now Russia. And these are the costs that you will have to bear.
Now, at one level, this is crazy because what it says to people is if I steal something from you and I say it's yours, I'm then absolutely indemnified against being incredibly violent to you when you try and take it back, which is an argument for saying I can take anything I like. Well, I mean, you've been to boarding school, probably. Uh, No, I never did. I certainly never did. (laughs) Well, that's what you missed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an enforcement device. So the open question is, does he mean it? And how would he implement that? And when you start to think about that, then you end up in a dead end, really. Because not even the Russian top brass really understand what the commitment now is from the political class to defending these territories. And this is a very difficult situation when the army itself doesn't understand where the politicians stand, then you're in trouble, frankly. Now, since he made that speech, the Ukrainians have taken a key town back, Lyman. Is it seriously the Russians' proposition that what the Ukrainians have just done is invaded a Russian city? It hasn't actually come out like that yet. But yes, in effect, that would be the proper reading. But I think you're being too logical about (laughs) approaching this problem. It will mean what he wants it to mean when he wants it to mean. And that's really how this whole war has been fought. If you start off by saying, I'm going to invade you, but I'm not going to call it an invasion. Well, that permeates through every part of that operation. We don't know yet. And I don't think he does either. Because apart from the military functions of all of this, he's got to keep a sense of resentment, a permanent sense of resentment. Otherwise, what else is the motivational force for the Russians? Coming up, at 70, how might Vladimir be contemplating his future? For four years, a civil war raged at one of the richest university colleges in Britain. She decided to tell me that Martin was in big trouble. Was it a plot to bring one man down? They're allowing the silence to prosecute you. Or was something else going on? It seemed to me merciless, pitiless. I'm Andrew Billen, a journalist at The Times. A new series, The Feud, begins this Thursday, here on Stories of Our Times. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Roger, let's move on a bit. So we've got the Russians trying to Mm. hold on to parts of provinces because they haven't actually conquered even some of the places that they've now claimed have had referenda in them and are now part of mm. Russia, have they? Mm. So, no. And the Ukrainians are fighting to get back whatever territory the Russians have taken. And this, as you say, has upped the ante because now the Russians are claiming it is actually Russian territory, sovereign Russian territory. And this is where the circumstances under which, as you describe, the beginnings of the more extreme nervousness about escalation into nuclear weapons comes from. Now, in the first instance, you just said earlier about the use of battlefield nuclear weapons. A lot of us hear these things said, but we don't really know what they mean. What does it actually mean to use a battlefield nuclear weapon? And would it be the first time anybody had used even something like that since the Second World War? Yes, I think it would. Although everyone has used pretty ghastly weapons, Again, it depends on what kind of weapon, but it can be an area with a radius of two miles, for example. That would count probably as a tactical nuclear weapon. How much would it destroy of that two miles? Well, that also depends. How much fallout there would be from that? Again, that depends because there are different strengths of these weapons. At the moment, they're moving, or they seem to be moving, by some kind of armoured train some Xander missiles, which are, you know, medium-range tactical weapons on which you can put nuclear warheads. But they've used those before with conventional warheads in this battle, haven't they? Yes, they have. And again, we're in this world of ambiguity because we don't know quite how they're going to use these weapons. And we won't know until they've trundled their way westwards. But the kind of working Western intelligence assumption is that they will end up in these annexed territories, maybe, or one of them will, or oh. or whatever. But either way, they, it's not a simple operation. You basically don't transport them, obviously, with a warhead on. You basically have to unload them, and this is a big problem for the Russians. They do have a problem with unloading and loading munitions. They have to do it by hand. And then they have to be warheaded, if there is a verb, warheaded, to warhead. Can we just look uh, for a moment at the pressures on Putin to threaten or use these terrible weapons, which haven't been used since 1945? There's that Chechen leader. Tell us a bit about him, the one who's been advocating the possible use of some form of nuclear weapon. That's Ramzan Katirov. He's the president of Chechnya, kind of sham independent republic. Putin managed to make out of Kadyrov a useful idiot, I suppose, but rather more than that, because Kadyrov became an enthusiastic extended arm of Putin's state. So an awful lot of assassinations and so on of Boris Nemtsov, for example, but loads of others were killed by Chechen assassins, either to please Putin without Putin's orders or somehow in coordination with the security services. So 
We don't quite know what the limits of his independence are or his murderous ability, but he does, and this is the point about it, he does serve as what might call a murderous lobbyist around the Kremlin. What we have is a situation now where some people probably around Putin want this war to be over faster than it is at the moment. But there are two ways that a war can be finished fast. It can be finished by some kind of diplomatic concession, or it can be done by escalating. And Kadyrov is an escalator. And do we have any notion? I mean, I remember the old days of Kremlinology when the Soviet Union was there. You tried to guess who was on which side in the Politburo. Usually a completely fruitless exercise, but we still used to do it. Do we have any idea who the counterbalances to Kadyrov might be or whether they exist? No, I don't think it quite works like that. Putin basically keeps all these people at a distance. And it's not that Kadyrov is an equal dialogue partner with, I don't know, Lavrov, the foreign minister, or someone like this. He's just simply part of the calculation. So now I'm imagining this, yeah? But there must be councils of war that are being held, and there must be competing views from the secret services, from the military, and maybe ruffians like Kadyrov, who then argue the case, I suppose. And which side would Kadyrov be on that? Part of Russian nuclear doctrine, you escalate to de-escalate. And I'm thinking that this is where Putin is, that he will have different stages on the escalation ladder with the option of de-escalating and gaining something through de-escalating. So this is probably how it'll work. And Kadyrov is useful in that respect. Useful because he just scares the bejabbers out of everybody. Yeah, because you can deploy him and say, look, I'm under significant pressure and I might have to give in to this significant pressure unless you give me something. Uh, yeah, would be yeah. the kind of, you know, it's not me, it's my brother. Have you met my terrible brother? He's the useful madman. I'm not the madman here. He is. You know. <laughs> Which is a good point to talk about Putin himself. He is 70. I guess there are two ways you can be 70, really. You can be 70 and mellow, mellow a bit, wise, sage, etc. Or you can be 70 and you can be an old man in a hurry. Which do you think he is? Well, I mean, there are different kinds of 70. There's 70 rich, where you're worried about your dynasty and you're worried that your children will be sent to jail for some of the crimes you've committed or whatever. Either way, you want the next generation to be secure. I don't think that's the case with Putin. He's got two daughters. He's kept them out of politics. They're quite rich. They can look after themselves. So I don't think he's that kind of 70. He could be the kind of 70 that has a terminal disease, in which case he's a risk taker, unless he's completely absorbed by treatment, or even if he is. But although there have been rumours around quite a few over the time, I don't get the sense that he's hiding hiding disease, and nor do I feel that he's being impelled really in that way. My own feeling is that it actually is less to do with being 70, and it's more to do with having spent a year and a half in lockdown before he became 70. And he doesn't read much. He's dependent on human interaction, so he's got a kind of group of relatively close people who come around. And I'm imagining this, yeah, but he might bounce ideas off them or hear what their ideas are or let ideas compete. 
But this didn't happen very much during lockdown. He was outside Moscow for most of the time. He was in this kind of germ-free zone. And it might be, it's quite interesting that, that actually his very hypochondria might have actually mm. changed his risk assessments. It's to say he might just have thought, I'm going to make decisions, you know, on my own or by Zoom or whatever. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing is so homegrown. It's come from his depths, his shallows, I don't know, from inside him anyway, rather than being forced onto him by competing groups of oligarchs, for example. So he's not being pulled in a direction by any of those considerations. That leads me to think that he's one of these kind of 70-year-olds who are a bit confused <laughs> and, <laughs> and is drawing on his own kind of resources. You know, maybe he's taken his dog for a walk or something and thought, well, why not Ukraine kind of thing. I think, Roger, this is the point to fess up that neither of us will see 60 again. <laughs> just in case just in case anybody thinks we're being nasty about older people no um, no 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 <laughs> my heart bleeds for you all 70 year olds everywhere so roger what conceivable end can you see to this first of all it'll end when he wants it to end we can pressure him in different directions but Ultimately, it's his call. He's the guy who's just invaded the country. So in a way, we're back to that question about his psychology and what he considers to be a victory and what, what not. But it can either end by him setting a territorial endpoint, or it can end by him setting a, a temporal target. You know, a lot of people thought it was going to end on May the 9th because it was victory day and what a great day. But of course, that's just how television networks think. It's not really how Putin thinks. So it didn't end on May the 9th. And it's not going to end, we can assume, on the anniversary of the Russian Revolution or something like this. But I think it has to end when China has enough. The Indians do. They're just fed up by the sheer destabilization of this war. So they want the war finished fast. And I think we're probably approaching that situation quite fast. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times Diplomatic Editor Roger Boys. You can read Roger's weekly column at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Have a good weekend. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.